Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Victoria Phillips, and I'm here with Lynn Garofola um, to speak about um, her newest book, um, uh, La Najinska, and um, uh, which has come out with Oxford University Press in 2022 um, in the United States and will be out this summer in the United Kingdom and Europe, I assume. Um, so, Lynn, um, uh, welcome, and thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you. It's a delight to to be connected to someone <laughs> as we uh, slog through this pandemic. It's it's um, it's wonderful for me. Um, apparently, today is the twenty um, second of February, so twenty two oh two or oh two twenty two, depending on which country you're in, in the year twenty twenty two. And apparently, all of these twos and zeros um, are uh, symbolic of beginnings. And um, I, um, it's a great honor to be here with you because you were the beginning of my career. Um, so. Um, this is truly um, a, a wonderful thing for me, and I thank you. Um, so um, can you uh, begin by just giving us an outline of, um, of the book um, and what your goals were with the book? Well, the book is a biography. It starts at the beginning, um, but it really starts, I would say, when she becomes, when she's about 17 or 18 years old. Nijinska herself wrote a volume of memoir, which she called Early Memoirs, in which she describes her childhood and growing up in her early years uh, with her parents, traveling throughout Southern and Western Russia, uh, exactly the same place where today there's, um, there, there's so much political strife. And then when she entered the Imperial Ballet School in St. Petersburg. So I felt there was nothing I could really add to that, maybe a few little snippets, but that essentially the story I wanted to tell was Nijinska the artist, the uh, innovative dancer and the um, even more innovative choreographer. And that really started when she joined the um, Diaghilev company in 1909. And then after that, I follow her until 1972 when she dies of a heart attack in the shower in Pacific Palisades. It was a very long story. It was a story that I wanted to do justice to because vast parts of it had never really been told or they'd only been told perhaps in one language and one particular uh, in one particular. A set of documents so that, for instance, a little bit had been said about the Polish ballet, but um, there was a lot more to be said. The same thing about the Teatro Colón and various um, other things. So that's where I felt I could really, it was important to talk about the entire um, career. Um, also, how things were layered, how people, um, how people entered her life, left her life, and the innumerable starts she seemed to have, however old she was. It wasn't like her, she began, and then there's a middle and an arc, and then it, it continues, and she moves on. It's very often a matter of starts and then stops for a while, then starts and stops, starts and stops. So I wanted to um, strike broadly, and I wanted to give really a panorama of ballet in the, oh, I would say in the first, you know, 60 years of the century, um, weaving her into it when so often she had been left out. And um, there's so much here. Um, can you speak about, we all know, of, you know, we all know the name Dijinsky. Um, mm -hmm. Can you speak about her as overlooked and forgotten um, for the audience? She happened to have the Wunderkind, the, the first major male superstar of the 20th century as a brother. This 
was an accident of birth. She herself was a very talented dancer, but her brother was extremely gifted. Not only that, he was extremely gifted at a time when relatively few men danced. So we know the tremendous um, celebrity that someone like Rudolf Nureyev or um, Mikhail Baryshnikov enjoyed when they defected. But it's hard to imagine what it would have been like if Nureyev had defected and there had been no other male dancers who were not simply not, um, not as good as him, but you weren't even in the same um, in the same ballpark. Um, so that was one of her problems. The other problem was that um, uh, Nijinsky, uh, that the entire ballet Russe was really created around Nijinsky. Um, Diaghilev, uh, Serge Diaghilev, who had founded the company and directed it. Uh, was Nijinsky's lover, and he basically structured the repertory around Nijinsky's unique gifts as a as a dancer, and then also um, did everything in his in his power to make Nijinsky into an innovative um, and successful choreographer. That took a lot of doing on Diaghilev's part, um, and the part of other people in. in in, involved with the company. This was not something anyone was willing to do for her, even though she realized through her participation in some, some of her brother's um, choreographic experiments that she too could choreograph, that she had the desire to choreograph. And that was not something that Diaghilev at that point was willing to advance. In fact, it was only later when she was in Russia on her own, and especially after the uh, uh, the revolution in 1917 and the events that followed, this sort of enormous creative euphoria among those uh, artists who remained in the Soviet Union, that she first really began to question what it was she was doing. She began to write treatises. Of course, she never published any of them, although one may have been published, but it's never been found, um, and began to, um, to work with students whom she had formed and uh, to do choreography, some of which included some of the earliest abstract ballets. Another thing was that it's very hard to complete, compete with a mad genius. It's one thing to compete with a genius, but a mad genius is not someone, and we know that Nijinsky by 1919 was confined in a mental institution. And that until, and for the next 30 years, he, he died in 1950, he would continue to live um, in institutions or under care, um, nursing care, um, virtually until he died. So um, there was this mad genius to contend with, this, leg this legendary figure who burned so brightly and then died. And there was another aspect to um, the sort of sensationalism that attached itself to his name, which was man-made or woman-made by his wife, Romola Nijinsky, who um, uh, basically depicted uh, her husband in, in her biography of him. And then later in the edition she made of his, um, of the diary he was writing when he was uh, really descending into the worst moments of his, the first major psychic break that he um, suffered, um, to really emphasize Diaghilev's kind of Spengali-like behavior toward Nijinsky. Of course, after Stonewall, this changed tremendously and both Diaghilev and Nijinsky were hailed as uh, gay heroes. Um, but it was very, it's very difficult. If you were the little sister, <laughs> you're excluded from much of that. In fact, she was, she was usually, she was all but written out of, of uh, uh, Ramala's biography of her husband, even though the two Nijinsky children were extremely close hmm. and shared a great deal um, while growing up and then later on while, um, while they were both dancing for the Ballet Russe. So I want to come back to questions of gender, but um, just, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting in the book um, and so pertinent 
um, right now is um, the sense of this being a global biography. I mean, that's what everyone, that's the new buzzword. That's what everyone's trying to do, global biography. And here you have a person um, who is more comfortable, as you say, in almost any other language than English. (laughs) Um, How, you know, one of the great problems is, you know, how exciting, first of all, um, Mm. and if you can talk about that process, but also um, how daunting when it comes to archives and translations. So could you talk talk about this as a global biography? Yes. Uh, Obviously, one of the difficulties of a global biography is doing a, a, a global biography that's not in one's native tongue. It would be great to do a global biography that was only in English or that was only in Spanish or only in French, but unfortunately, global biographies are in many different languages. And in the case of Nijinska, these languages included Slavic languages as well as Romance languages and a little German thrown in there. Um, uh, the uh, the Nijinska archives, which was Nijinska's collection, which was then purchased by the Library of Congress in the late 1990s, and although it took nearly a decade for it to be more or less cataloged, um, includes all of her writings. And unfortunately for me, um, not being a fluent Russian speaker, all of those writings were in Russian. And I had to work very early on with a translator. There were some things I could translate, or certainly I knew enough Russian to look at something and say, well, that's not really this. This is really something else. Um, And to be able to read enough to know that this had to be translated by someone who really understood um, what what it was about. Uh, I was fortunate um, in having... In working for a lot of this through this a lot of this material, with someone who held a PhD from Yale in Slavic studies, who had grown up in the um, in Russia, so handwriting posed no problems for her. And moreover, she understood the literary um, echoes, the musical echoes, etc., uh, etc. Et so it, this was a very compatible um, arrange, I would say, arrangement. And she, I think, enjoyed it um, tremendously. Uh, when it came to um, Nijinska's correspondence, the older the correspondence, and if they were in Russian, they always remained writing in Russian. There were certain people who ended up uh, moving into, um, you know, as the emigration went on, there were certain people who ended up writing um, uh, more easily in French or more easily in English, but there were still some things in Russian. There'd always be the handwritten thing, you know, uh, I embrace you and everyone else, you know, <laughs> um, that would be um, in Russian. With regard to her travels, this posed quite another problem because um, she traveled all over the place. She did have the presence of mind or a sense of her own importance that she had clipping services um, wherever she went so that there are scrapbooks um, covering her travels in South America, which was wonderful because while you can get certain uh, newspapers on microfilm in London or in New York uh, from Buenos Aires, you can't get everything. Uh, It was also, uh, this was really um, important also in terms of Poland, and the Polish ballet, where she uh, worked with them in 1937 and 1938, because much of the archives of the company were destroyed during the war. Uh, and, and then various other things, when she would do something in Buffalo or do a little, some tiny little thing in Chicago, she'd have a number of things that she had clipped out with her name. I you did other newspaper research um, to amplify that because a clipping service only clips out uh, an article if the name of the person they're following is mentioned. But sometimes the story is not just who's mentioned, but who's not mentioned. And you want to get a broader sense of what is going on around, be it in the theater, be it culturally. Uh, And so there were periods, for instance, when I just combed the pages of Comedia, the daily Paris theatrical newspaper and found some amazing things on the front page, which had nothing to do with Nijinska, but really set the, um, allowed me to understand the context um, a little, uh, a little bit better. 
Right. Um, so global biography, and then one sort of plunges in so far as possible into other sources. So I was fortunate that my Spanish is very strong. So I was able to plunge into a lot of um, Argentine sources, books about Argentine ballet, the, um, the Teatro Colón, various ballerinas whom she had worked with, and others, um, a few dissertations uh, for, for later, for the 1940s, about what was going on in, in the performing arts in Argentina. So there, so there I was able to, I felt to really get into something and um, be able to, um, uh, you know, have some broader context. With Poland, um, I attempted somewhat broader context. There were some books and some articles, of course, that were in English. But then I also went to a number of um, consulted a number of books about the art, the visual artists who were involved. And that was very, very helpful, especially because there was one woman visual artist there. Um, and it really seemed that there was a connection between the two, not just that she had been assigned, so-and-so is doing the designs and you're doing the choreography, but in fact, there seemed to be really something, even though Nijinska had insisted that she changed something. And it was very interesting at a conference in September, a virtual conference in Warsaw, I actually met the woman who had written the book about this particular artist. And she said, oh, yes, they were great friends. And there were other kinds of things. And, and of course, the other link was that they both spent a lot of time in Kiev. This other woman had been born in Kiev. Nijinska had traveled to Kiev as a child. Her brother was Vaslav was born there. She then spent many years in Kiev between 1915 and 1921 when she emigrated. So one felt that there was a whole life there that was lives that were connecting in very uh, real ways. Having said that, um, and having attended some conferences in Poland, I'm perfectly aware that there are many other issues, nationalisms, especially in that part of the world that um, complicated matters tremendously. And the anti-Russian feeling and uh, which was very strong in Poland in the years just before the Second World War. Interesting. That's fascinating. Um, I mean, what a, what a trek. Um, so you have all of this research. You've got these scrapbooks. You've got, I mean, a fantastic collection at the Library of Congress. Where do you begin? How do, how do you begin? Well, the first, I, I will tell you how I began. The first thing I did uh, was Elizabeth Aldridge said, you know, the Nijinska collection is open for people to look at. So I said, well... Um, I had worked with the collection a little tiny bit when it was still on site in California. And I knew for sure, I knew that there was no second volume. Irina Nijinska, Nijinska's daughter, kept saying, oh, there is a second volume and I will get to it. But I have so many productions I have to stage. And there was no second volume, as I ascertained. However, I... Uh, wanted to see if there would be some problem about someone really going through the collection and working with the materials who is not connected to the family. Because at that point, um, Nijinska's son-in-law was still, who had sold the collection, but he was still in, um, in, alive. Uh, there was a son, there was a daughter. Uh, the daughter I knew, uh, I mean, uh, Nijinska's granddaughter, um, and I did know her somewhat, so I was able to be in touch. So I decided, first of all, to do an article that was really a kind of historic, not exactly historiographic, but looked at early memoirs in light of some of the materials I found in the collection. And to realize to what extent early memoirs was not what Nijinska had written. Um, that what she, what she wrote was available in numerous versions in Russian, but also a couple of versions in English because she had started having it translated and then she would go over things and nothing was ever published. Um, but a great deal was written. And I realized that a lot had been added to this primitive 
manuscript that Nijinska had left when she um, when she died in 1972. And that's and I began also finding certain materials that had clearly been materials that were added. For instance, there was nothing about the revolution of 1905, but in early memoirs, there's a section about the revolution of 1905. And I found in the archive archives notes that Irina Nijinska, that is to say Bronislava's daughter, had taken from this volume by Tilyakovsky, the one-time director of the Imperial Theaters, um, and his diary entries during the period of 1905, the revolutionary period. So she had gone and copied out some of those things and then basically added them to the thing. There were many other instances of this as well, where where figures would be explained. I mean, there was one where people are attending, Nijinska and her brother and one of Nijinsky's early lovers were attending a performance by Isadora Duncan. And there's Nijinska's reaction to it. And then there is all kinds of other things about Karsavin, what Karsavina said and what this one said and that one said. And then I realized after a while that in editing the book, um, the Irina Nijinska didn't trust her mother's um, text. And she felt she had to connect it to other memoirs that had been um, that had been uh, written about the same period. And I actually felt published or republished in the previous 10 years. <laughs> it was that precise. And, and then so as to basically place her her mother within this larger context. And then she um, um, had struck up a friendship with a writer who lived close by her house. And that was Jean Rawlinson, who became the other co-author, co-editor of the book. And I did meet her when I was in California. And I have to say, I could hear her voice (laughs) in the prose. And it was a good voice. It had a certain quality. To me, it was almost Tolstoyan. (laughs) So in a way, that became Nijinska's voice as well. Fascinating. So you started out with kind of an academic article to test the waters, as it were. And And the waters were fine. Uh, The waters were fine. And then the next thing I decided, the most important thing was what happened during the revolution, how did what was the transformation that she underwent? So I wrote a second, very long and very detailed academic article that was published in Dan's Research, which was based on other things that I had discovered, like some of the treatises that were very early, and also this early diary or the, the earliest surviving diary. It wasn't her own early earliest diary, but the earliest surviving one. And so that enabled, that gave me all kinds of clues. Um, And then I found other things where she had made lists of people she knew in Kiev, even with telephone numbers in some cases. And that's where I saw a number of um, musicians and directors, as well as dancers and others who were part of that, of her world. And, And so it was really on the basis of that, that I was able to build this um, this article. And that article, you know, with changes, both cuts as well as some additions um, and later discoveries, is the second chapter of the book. Fact. So that was written, bef- so in a sense, the thinking that went into that um, was done before. And then when I started writing, um, when I was at the Coleman, even though I was still researching, I, I, I did the first chapter which takes her, tries to rethink the, her early days with Diaghilev and focusing on her as a dancer. And that surprised me tremendously because when I really got down to the reviews um, and read the whole review, not just snippets that were in other places, I realized she was a remarkable dancer, mm. you know, and was treated as a principal dancer <laughs> by, you know, she rose very rapidly through the ranks. Fascinating. Uh, so uh, what my familiarity with your work initially and what drew me to your work was, you know, you're 
you know, very precise historically. You know, you're an, an excellent historian, theorist. What was it like to do biography? Uh, it was actually very freeing. <laughs> it was very freeing because um, I am not a theorist in the mo- as that term is generally understood. Um, I was not about to prove one or another theory through this particular life. Uh, and I felt that writing a biography would enable one to elicit certain types of material that if one, if one were writing a grand, you know, theoretical piece about, I don't know, the role of women in something or other, that you wouldn't be able to get at the level of detail where so much of the sexism was found, you know, was, you know, was expressed. And also, what would I do with the, um, also, it enabled me to um, try to figure out what was going on in her own head, you know, her story, and then this, and also on many, many other stories, which um, I, um, I read a lot of um, oral histories, I read a number of articles that were mem- memoirs, um, but I was particularly interested in some of the oral histories that I discovered both in Australia and which have been put online, the Australian through the Australian National Library, um, because many Ballyroos, the second generation of Ballyroos dancers, settled in Australia, and the, among them were a number of dancers who had worked with Nijinska, and then. Also, some wonderful oral histories that were in New York Public, that which had been done, oh, maybe in the 1970s when they embarked on a very big oral history project. So many of the um, testimonials came from dancers who had been active in the 1930s and 1940s, which was very helpful to me. Interesting. Uh, you know, so I was able, and then finally... This is my pandemic story. <laughs> the, um, uh, during the pandemic, I was working on the last chapter. So much of that was the Royal Ballet. Uh, when she restages at Frederick Ashton's invitation, both Les Nos and Les Biches, these were extremely important productions because basically they restored those two works to international uh, to the international repertory and made sure they were filmed and notated and kept in repertory, et cetera. And then uh, she worked with a company in Buffalo, a very small company with young dancers, but who were many of whom went on to professional careers. So during the lockdown, I was having daily conversations and email exchanges and other things with this group of people from a group of former dancers from Buffalo. And so this was a very different approach to, this was not so much historical, although they brought me new historical sources, um, which they had kept from in their albums and other things, but it was mainly their recollections and their memories that really made that moment you know, come alive for me. And then the final moment, once again, were these, um, and so that was a positive experience, even though there were some negative elements later on in terms of how Nijinska's work had once again not survived, you know, the collapse of a company. But then the final moment, and I'm so glad to end on an up note, is that Nijinska was able to reestablish contact with some of her former students from Kiev, and to experience once again the enthusiasm and admiration they had for her as a thinker, as a choreographer, as a mother figure. It was wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because when I was reading um, the book, you know, I I could see kind of the, you know, the the larger theoretical intervention, as it were, you know, look at the women, right? You know, there were, you know, we we are all so steeped um, and the obviously the opposite um, 
probably in modern dance, you know, with Martha Graham and Doris Humphrey and, you know, there's the little Jose Limon, but, you know, so modern choreographers are women and ballet choreographers are men, right? And, you know, there's this, well, hold on moment here, um, reading, you know, and saying, wait a minute, you know, there are, the, the men survived, um, but there were women. And I think that's just fabulous. There were women and so many of them went on to very interesting things, you know, but it may have happened in Brazil that they were founding a company or Western Australia or, you know, someplace else, or maybe they were directing something in Buenos Aires. So there was no, there was, it was not with the breakup of this emigre world, this Paris centered emigre world um, with the second world war, it all kind of goes to pieces and people go off into all kinds of places and there's no sense of a central linear focus the way you have with the uh, Sadler's Wells, the Royal Ballet, Ninetta Valois, and then in the United States with the Ballet Russe companies and then the Balanchine Company, the New York City Ballet. So there was very, you know, very much um, the sense that Without companies, as so much as so much collapses, so too do the the legacies. Uh, it's hard to say they collapse; they never coalesced. You yeah. Know? yeah. So we, it makes us realize, it made me realize to what extent it's we study these legacies, these legacy companies, these legacy forms, because in a way it's easier. It's easier to go to a library and find thousands of ABT records, or it's easier to go and find um, in a library the or in a theater, the records of the Royal Ballet and the other companies earlier, or the Ballet Brambert or the Paris Opera, although the Archive National, you know, the boxes, you never quite know what you're going to find in the boxes. <laughs> but nevertheless, these have been kept for 300 years sometimes. So this is a very, mm. so once you get to things that have not yet coalesced into something that people recognize as a tradition, um, then it it becomes much harder to find that stuff out. The other thing that was so interesting to me was how many female critics were around the U.S. Uh, Claudia Cassidy in, uh, in Chicago, Anne Barzell in Chicago. Um, there was another one at the L.A. Times. These are women who are writing. We basically don't know much about them. People will may mention on passant Claudia Cassidy, but who is Claudia Cassidy? I don't really know. I have a sense of her writing style um, and her liveliness and her wit and her, you know, sharpness, but I don't, you know, know any, I don't know where she began life and where she ended up life. I just have this sort of middle period when she was there and Barzell, I have a better sense of she, um, but you know, there were these um, critics around and there were even seasons when quite a number of people, of women were choreographing. My favorite is 1942 when Nijinska had something in the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo repertory as did Agnes DeMille and one of the dancers it wasn't a terribly great work, but there was a triple bill, all women. Now, what I found really interesting is when I read, reread Agnes DeMille's um, and, Promenade, and Promenade Home, no, Dance for the Piper, the first volume, she talks about the difficulties she had with all these crazy Russians trying to uh, choreograph um, the uh, 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 Rodeo, but she never ever mentions that there were any other women choreographers around. She's always sui generis. And I thought, well, Agnes, <laughs> this is pretty amazing because all the critics from John Martin on remarked about the presence of women in the company at that moment. Wow, that is that's completely fascinating. Completely fascinating. You know, there is that, um, you know, you, I, I see it a lot in the political women and certainly in Martha Graham that, you know, they want to be center stage and they do not want to join with other women. You know, this is they want to be unique individuals. And they, uh, Yes. 
And DeMille, because she is also so fluent as a writer and because she wrote so much and because she is respected as a writer, a writer of popular history, if you will. I have nothing against popular history, but uh, one can't believe everything she says. (laughs) Now, I was warned by that by friends of mine who knew a great deal about Martha Graham <laughs> after the publication of her of her Martha Graham biography they kept saying no Danielle got it all wrong don't believe everything she says and I said oh okay there probably are some little things but no this was serious that it's yeah what yeah one is um kind of a there are many errors that I've seen in the in the Graham biography, but they're all highly amusing. <laughs> but um, what's the problematic? I think that you're pointing to is is the the misframing. Um, yes. Of of the of the woman in particularly in ballet, um, I you know one of my questions I noticed that um, Najinska worked for ballet theater, American ballet theater. Um, and, um, was that, was there a relationship between her and Lucia Chase? Um, was it any, was there any indication that it was different working for a woman than for a man or was she not working for Chase? Initially, uh, now this is 1939, 1940. When she first comes to the U S she does La Fille Magarde. She, had something to do with Chase because Chase had been part of the Mortgen production. And I know she spoke to her. I don't know if she spoke to Mortgen. Mortgen perhaps didn't want to speak to her. But nevertheless, there was something about Chase and uh, someone else as well. Um, And they spoke about the score and certain cuts and certain other things and the treatment that it, um, but there was no question from the start of about Lucia Chase playing a central role in the in this new production. It was clear it was going to be one of the ballerinas. In fact, it was Nijinska who insisted that it be, oh, I'm blanking, um, the woman who was well-known for dancing at the Radio City Opera Music Hall. You know who I mean. She was she had she was very experienced. She was very much considered. She had a comic touch. She the reviews of her were wonderful. Um, yet again, one of those curious little notes in Nijinska's career, where she chooses American-born and trained dancers, because I think because she feels they worked very hard. The women. There were there were a couple of others in the 1930s. Some in the 1940s, she felt they worked very, very hard, harder than some of the Russians who more or less felt they could get away with whatever. They were Russian. But she liked, she respected hard work tremendously. She always felt she had to work so hard and she um, uh, respected that. But there's no, but then after that, she doesn't have communication with Lucia Chase. The uh, communication is with, um, the other, the the one who is, um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, um, I know, yeah, <laughs> we'll dub this in. Um, yes, is I'll, with the uh, one who was friends with Lincoln Kirstein, yes. who was in charge of repertory. There were a number of telegrams between them in the uh, winter of. Uh, in the winter of 1940, after the end of the first season, he was interested in her um, possibly doing Les Biches, but that wasn't possible because they couldn't get the music from Europe. We, we, have to, we, re, we need to remember that France was, you couldn't just get a score from France. Uh, France was with the Germans. Um, and she couldn't get any of her, um, she had the sets and costumes for Les Biches, which she had um, commissioned for her own company and were used in the 1930s and they were in a warehouse outside Paris. Then there was some talk, then um, um, this fellow whose name both of us are blanking on, um, asked her to look at some Spanish music, Salon Mexico, which was one of Copeland's pieces. And then after that, everything just breaks off. Mm. And essentially certain uh, repertory items, such as Aurora's Wedding, which she she had originally choreographed, she had kept in, um, she'd worked on for a number of years, 
Um, that was then staged by Anton Dolan, who becomes one of the ones responsible for that repertory in the, you know, in the early 1940s. She is called back in 1941 when she does um, The Beloved, which um, was a remake of a ballet she had originally done for um, for Ida Rubinstein, then re-choreographed, adapted, re-choreographed for Alicia Markova in 1937 for her own company. Um, that ballet opened in Mexico City where it got a rave review. And then in New York, it got, I mean, a tepid review, but an okay review from John Martin. And then a really nasty review from, uh, from Walter Terry, <laughs> who somehow did not like the male role. He felt it was, it was too princely. It was the poet yearning. Didn't like that. Um, I think he was merely echoing something that he heard from Anton Dolan, um, who basically didn't like being second fiddle to Markova. Interesting. Uh, but, and so that sort of dropped, but meanwhile, she's working for the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. So there the and then she's called again in the 1945 to do something to do a ballet called Harvest Time for to some Polish music that she did um, for it to uh, Tamara Tumanova, who's a guest artist that season, and that once again was not terribly well received, but the um, Denby just slashed it. I was rather surprised to read some of Denby's reviews in context of Nijinska's career um, from 1944, 45, 46. As soon as Balanchine began to swim back into the New York pond, ballet pond, he turns very, very negative to, toward, um, toward um, Nijinska and all her works. It's really, um, and that killed certain works you know, which never really were performed later on an American stage, like her Chopin, Chopin Concerto um, was one of them. And, um, you know, and then there, there was her Bach Ballet. Um, and of course, the minute that was no longer performed, guess what was performed? Concerto Barocco. Now, I love Nijin's, uh, I love Balanchine's Concerto Barocco, his Bach Ballet. Um, but I I hate the fact that so many things get jettisoned exactly at that moment and that there is this real um, fan club with Denby being very much, being deeply unfair at this point. That's fascinating because, you know, one of my questions was, you know, could you um, talk about, you know, the relationship um, between Nijinska and, or or lack thereof, um, Nijinska and Lincoln Kirsten and his all of his iterations, um, you know, Balanchine. Although we know that you know Russian isn't Georgian and all of that stuff, you know, but you know you would think there would might be some compatibility or you know common something or other. I mean, but they're just or or was it just you know kind of an old boys club? I think it was very much an old boys club, and certainly. Um, I think Nijinska had a, a certain respect for Kirstein, no doubt, um, respect for his knowledge. What Kirstein felt for um, Nijinska is revealed in some diary entries from 1935 uh, when Nijinska's in New York. Uh, she, uh, she goes and visits um, Kirstein. At this point, she wants to write her own memoirs, and she knows that Kirstein has ghostwritten Romola Nijinsky's biography of her husband, and basically she wants him to do the same, but he won't. And but what he what he really enjoys is seeing all her photographs of Nijinsky. <laughs> yes, and he basically didn't even say anything about Lenos when it was performed for given three performances in New York by the Ballet Russe. Company uh, in 1936, so it's quite. Um, but then, of course, Nijinska, instead of even having her outline for her book, her early memoir, uh, her memoir um, translated from Russian at least into French, because a lot of people in publishing would have read that. She left it in Russian. <laughs> you know, so of course, 
this is where you sometimes wish Nijinska had a husband who sort of said, <laughs> sat her down and said, now, <laughs> this is what you have to do. Fascinating. <laughs> you know, right? You know, it's easy. It was easy to navigate the ballet world, at least the world of presentations, impresarios, mu- music conductors, knowing only Russian in the 1920s and 30s because there were so many emigres at that point. But once you got to the U.S., it was a little bit different. And certainly when it came to... uh, Americans have never been great with languages, but certainly it's someone, it it should have occurred to someone that she needed to do that, at least in French. (laughs) You know, it's it's completely, it's it's fascinating. Um, uh, And... You know, one of the things that um, I got from, from that I got out of the book was it. It seems like you really like her. Yes, I do. I she annoys me tremendously sometimes. <laughs> yes. but that comes. But from, I, it seems to come from caring. But I like, you know, I I like her strength, and I like the fact that she continued to do what she wanted to do. She just didn't give up. Yeah. And she kept moving forward and believed in high art. You know, you know, she was enormously embarrassed by the fact that um, after she left Russia and was in Vienna and um, she desperately needed, needed money before her Diaghilev contract began. So she worked in a music hall and did a he did some numbers, basically, you know, numbers that were part of her solo repertory or duo repertory. She never told anybody about that. She never wrote about it anywhere. I discovered that totally by accident that she was dancing at the Moulin Rouge for a month, more than a month. And only because I went through an Austrian newspaper that seemed to have a lot about entertainments. And I just put in her name, spelled it various ways, and up she popped. Wow. Was, <laughs> and they were reviews of her? They weren't reviews. These were really ads uh, for the show that was being given at this the Moulin Rouge in Vienna. And there were a lot of different entertainers. And she was considered, you know, one of the headliners. And sometimes it would say the, it, say the dances that she was doing with her partner and that she, that was very silent. And unlike so many people in the 1940s in the U S many ballet dancers and choreographers, she did not work on the music. Uh, she didn't work on Broadway. Fascinating. Um, it, it's, I'm, I'm was completely um, enthralled with your first page um, and um you use the words modern tradition, neoclassicism, avant-garde, and <laughs> ballet modernism. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is fabulous. Um, so, you know, uh, but, uh, one of the reasons I love this is because I um, used, used the, the, the phrase ballet modernism, and now I can quote you, and I was really, um, I, was, I was taken to task for it. So can you tell the listeners, you know, what do we mean by, um, you know, what, in a sense, what's the difference between the neoclassicism and ballet modernism? Um, What, you know, what, what would we be looking for here? The ballet modernism is fundamentally uh, an approach to ballet that incorporates uh, and reflects um, 20th century interests different ways of approaching the body, different ways of organizing material. But using the term ballet um, suggests that the fundamental movement language remains rooted in ballet vocabulary. Even though many of the forms that may appear on stage are not necessarily ballet, obviously balletic. So if one thinks about the Rite of Spring, it's a ballet, at least as choreographed by Nijinsky, at least as we think it was choreographed by Nijinsky, but there is no point work in it. Uh, The way the body is used is very, very different. There are certain highly stylized connections with folklore, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I would, so 
obvious with many different um, choreographers, there would be different stylistic representations of that, but that's fundamentally what I would, how I would define that. I define it fairly loosely, um, but I would define it that way. The term neoclassic, valley neoclassicism, um, neoclassicism is something that is across all the arts in the early, um, I would say in the period after World War I. And uh, in France, it was a very important trend um, it becomes an important trend, especially after the Second World War in, in the U U.S. The U.S., the timeline's a little bit different. But that would include a work like Nijinska's Les Nos, which is also clearly an, um, an example of ballet modernism. But because she reincorporates the use of point work in a very dramatic way, um, this would lend what this in a sense is almost a return to some extent to the traditional ballet vocabulary. One of these signs of ballet modernism is very frequently um, a modification of the use of point work, which was central to 19, late 19th century Russian ballet, the use of um, uh, turnout, in other words, sometimes Full turnout was not used. Sometimes parallel might be used. In other words, rejecting some of the freer use of the torso, freer use of the arms than in the conventional um, positions and poses that one finds in the um, in late 19th century ballet aesthetics. Um, I believe that in a work like Les Nos, one sees both ballet modernism and ballet neoclassicism simultaneously. And I think that's the case of many of Nijinska's, um, Nijinska's ballets, although she could also work in a character in idiom, um, character dance idiom. quite. And there you, it's in this that you see her similarity with Balanchine, although her style is quite different from Balanchine's, because Balanchine too is working, is breaking with a number of the stylistic um, conventions of the 19th, of the late 19th century in Russia, Russian ballet, but also um, reaffirming the classical, the basis of classical vocabulary, um, as opposed to, and this is where you would see the difference between dancers who would uh, are more closely affiliated with modern dance, that they would not see this classical foundation as being fundamental to training and, and to any of their, to their practice. Interesting. Um, what's your um, favorite moment in the book? What was the, what was the, where you just said, wow, this is fun to write. <laughs> Maybe the Eda Rubenstein chapter. <laughs> and why is that? <laughs> because there is Nijinska with her 45 dancers in this summer in Paris, rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing, no air conditioning. And there is Ida Rubinstein on uh, Guinness's yacht in the Mediterranean, <laughs> sending back letters and telegrams from the Eastern Mediterranean and saying, if you must send me a letter, do send it to where they were going on next. So I think that was one of, my, one of the funniest moments. Fabulous. One of the funniest moments. Fabulous. Um, and um, well, uh, one practical question, if readers want to see, um, you know, video or um, examples of the works, um, how would you suggest that one see examples of the works well done? Well, this is a harder question. Uh, when it comes to Les Nos and Les Biches, I would say if the Royal Ballet is doing them, do them. I would also say if they had access to a library, be it the um, the British Film Institute or New York Public Library at Lincoln Center to see the 1978 documentary about Les Nos, which is a, at least two hours. It has Leonard Bernstein taking you through the entire um, musical 
uh, Stravinsky's work, um, analyzing the music as he did so brilliantly, telling you what's being said, um, et cetera. And then um, combining that with the, um, with the choreography, which is introduced by Frederick Ashton. Many of the dancers in the uh, choreographic, in the company at that point, this is the Royal Ballet, had worked with Nijinska in 1966. So this is the closest one can get to an authentic production, even though it's probably it was probably quite different from what the ballet looked in 1936 or 1923, just because the dancers were the Royal Ballet. Um, but it was, it's a wonderful version. If you can't do that, <laughs> um, there are a couple of things I, um, there are some things on YouTube. I know there are completely nos. I was just looking at the Mariinsky one, although I don't think it's as precise as it should be. I don't think the dancers had enough time to rehearse and really get comfortable in this style. Um, there's also a wonderful clip of by um, Zinaida uh, Yagorsky, I think is her last name, who is a royal ballet dancer who is um, at a gala some gala, she did Nijinska's solo in Le Biche. And she does it wonderfully. And one of the things I like best about it is here is a woman dancing this. This is not an 18 year old girl trying to pretend she's, you know, um, a society hostess. And she gets the real sense of power behind it, the almost masculinity of the steps, et cetera, et cetera. There were also some other production. There are also some, there's some footage of Lenos on that. And then a little thing that I didn't discover until last year. And here you have to look up Rosella Hightower. Rosella Hightower was one of the um, Native American ballerinas who um, found fame in the 1940s and 50s. She joined the Marquita Cuevas Company and when Nijinska was working for that company, had a wonderful relationship with Nijinska. And in fact, her um, oral history, which Elizabeth Kendall took in the 1970s, gave me, it was really helpful in understanding Nijinska. And um, she was like Markova, one of, she became one of Nijinska's ballerina muses. Hmm. And she um, talked about how Nijinska would get her to do all kinds of technical things she never thought she could do because she kept emphasizing rhythm and she kept emphasizing breath and other things. And, and also the strength of the um, abdominals, which was not something in 1947 or 48 that ballet choreographers talked about. And there's this little clip a variation from the vision scene in Sleeping Beauty, which Nijinska choreographed for her in 1960, where you can see her just floating through the most impossible um, pirouettes and balances and legs going in all directions as if it were nothing. And I think this is um, something that is really wonderful to see, you know, to see Nijinska with her ballerina one of the ballerina muses. There's also um, Le Trembleur, which is not necessarily Nijinska's, it's partly Nijinska's. Um, it's a work that was uh, revived by someone who was really a Cocteau person. He taught at University of California in uh, Santa Barbara and set this, restaged this with assistance, he says, from Anton Dolan. Um, for the Oakland Ballet. And the, Nijinska, you know, had some sense of humor, but it wasn't like college humor or anything. And a little bit about this is a little too 1920s madcap, if you know what I mean. And that's not Nijinska. There would be something slyer, there'd be something a little darker underneath. But it's fun. And it gives you a sense of the ballet and a sense of the kinds of characters. But as I say, it's a kind of Nijinska light. Um, probably more Frank Reese than Nijinska. <laughs> but you also see the wonderful uh, costumes by Chanel, you know, remade. 
honestly, I, I love the, the, the long Chanel um, pearls and. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Fabulous. Um, so um, what, what have I missed? What, what would you like to say that we haven't said? There's so much we've missed. I know. Well, I just hope one, it opens up new, uh, uh, new uh, scholarly projects that it, encourages people to investigate new people, look at familiar situations from an unfamiliar angle. I also hope it's read by a number of people who are active in the field as performers and aspiring choreographers uh, to suggest, first of all, that here's a woman who went through all of this, who continued to work and continued to work and even if something was not that successful, she kept going on, you know, because not everything she did was first rate, but nothing anyone ever does is first rate. Most choreography that we see is middling, you know, mediocre, not terrible, not great. It's there and it serves a purpose and it's perhaps accomplished, uh, et cetera. So I hope this inspires more women to move forward, to keep choreographing to insist that their works not just be on an isolated women's only program, but be incorporated into repertories so that people become familiar with it. And I would hope that companies retain the loyalty, you know, attempt to create situations of loyalty to some of their women choreographers, not that they're hiring them just to satisfy, you know, just because it's time to do it or, there's a little funding for it or something. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This is just wonderful. Um, I deeply well, thank you for having time. me. Um, and um, I look forward to seeing the, the book in person. Yes, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> My terrible fear is it's sitting in a container <laughs> in a ship <laughs> anchored off the coast of California. <laughs> <laughs> because the books were um were produced in India so they do have a long journey to make. 